Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello! Welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, also known as the Brain Broad. And today, as always, is going to be a wonderful, fantastic day. In fact, one of these days, just to trip you all up who are used to hearing me say that, I'm going to say, and today is just going to suck. But not today, because today is actually going to be a wonderful, fantastic day. I am excited about our guest. Y'all know that I'm interested in uh, sort of the support of technology for autism because if you've been following the show, you've already heard me talk with a robot. We've talked with a robot who goes in and works with autism, and he was really cute. His name was Nao. And we've had a show on Google Glass, and I've told you about how I did a Google Glass episode for the Autism Channel, and I also had the Google Glass here working with my son. And In fact, we posted on Facebook a shot of him. He had the glass on, and it was taping him, and I got to see that he actually eats the shaving cream. So, so there's been a lot of fun that's happened as a result of trying to find out how to make this technology fit. Well, we're in for a real exciting show today because we're going to take that even farther. We're going to investigate that even deeper with our guest. But before I get into that, I want to remind you to stay to the end of the show where we'll have stories from the road. And I will, I promise you, come up with a story that wraps the whole show into a nice little bow and answers a question that I've asked and uh, I haven't necessarily asked it yet. I don't know what our main show question is going to be today. Maybe uh, is technology really helping or is it possibly, oh, here's a good one. Is the, the inclusion of a technological assistive device going to improve the state? in the symptoms of autism, or will it possibly reinforce them? And I actually think we can play with that a little bit. So that's a good question. Let's try and get that answer. If we don't get it in the show, I promise to do something at the end in Stories from the Road. We're going to throw away, okay, 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 the great guest giveaway, because I'm too busy with this guest. I'm really excited to have him. I've been actually chasing him on the Internet, trying to get him to do the show. I don't know if he knows it, but I'm about to meet him in a couple of weeks. Um, I'm thrilled. Uh, you will be, too. He's got a great, sexy voice. So even if you don't like what he has to say, I think you should listen. Uh, so our guest today has a Ph.D. Uh, would you like to know his name? That's probably a good start. I was kind of avoiding it because, as you know, I have this name issue. But I think I might have fixed it by now. So let's try. Dr. Ned Sahin. Hey, go ahead and tell me if I did that right. Perfect. Okay, yay. Okay, now be quiet for a second while I talk about how great you are. Okay, so Dr. Ned Zaheen is, uh, he got his PhD at Harvard, which is la, 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 very fancy, and an MS from MIT. Now, MIT is someplace, I only took one class, but while I was there learning neurofeedback, there was a chance 
that they were going to do a master's in it. And I tried so hard to make that happen. I kept on sending letters and everything because I thought that a PhD or at least a master's in neurofeedback would have been fantastic, but I don't think it ever did take place, and I ended up going somewhere else. So I'm jealous as can be. He's won teaching prizes at uh, both of those, Harvard and the MIT, and he's had best dissertation prize at Harvard. Oh, my gosh. Undergrad at Williams. All degrees were in neuroscience. But he's also a tech nerd and entrepreneur and worked at Bell Labs. Actually, I was last night watching a bunch of stuff um, for quantum physics, which is my sort of hobby, and I was wondering if I could use his brain later. I don't know if he's into quantum physics. I'll ask him at the end of the show. Um, Oh, my goodness. There's just so much here. We're going to go ahead and jump into talking to him before I end up spending the whole time introducing him. But I do want to tell you that he's the founder of BrainPower. He delivered a keynote lecture, which I absolutely adored. It was clear, it was easy to follow, and it really helps you to understand some of what he's bringing to the future of autism through this technology. And I think from there I'm going to let him go ahead and talk. But he was presenting at Google, which is really exciting because he's been invited there to talk many times, which means they're probably going to help him make this happen. I hope that's true. Let's find out. So welcome to the show, Dr. Ned Sahin. Thank you so much. It's absolutely great to be here. I've never had such a good introduction. Can I hire you to just come around with me and do that? That was great. Yes, you can, actually. I'm a little a little worn out from my life. I'd love a little following someone else around for a change. But, go, All right. but you're welcome. Book it you're in. Welcome. Get up, get going, and, and uh, you never know what comes next. You never know what comes next. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about um, let's let's give them a sense of who you were. I told them you know some of your education hits, but how did you end up a nerd and interested in getting these types of degrees? Like, what kind of kid were you? Well, I was a nerdy kid, but uh, people apparently found me at least cute, if not charming, and probably both. I don't know why. I just loved figuring out how things worked, and I dove in. There was a graveyard in my backyard, and I built it. Now, what the heck am I talking about? I would remove things from the house and take them to the garage and try to figure out how they worked. I'd open up a blender or a calculator or whatever was there, a thermostat. I wanted to know what was inside, what the mechanism was. Problem was, those things didn't really make it easy to put themselves back together. There were snap joints and glued parts and injection molded plastic. So when I got them apart and found whatever magic was inside, I couldn't put them back together quite as well. And so they ended up buried in my backyard. I'm not sure what my parents ever figured out where they thought the stuff went or what. But meanwhile, I was learning about the internal mechanisms of things. And now, if you're always, a true if you're a true entrepreneur, you later, after burying all that stuff, started, you know, getting kids to pay. 50 cents or or a dollar 50 whatever <laughs> whatever you could get while well, they walked around with their metal detectors trying to find the magic treasure it's a good idea and we did some my brother and I were both kind of entrepreneurial and we lived near a golf course for a time and we'd collect the balls that the um, hapless golfers would hit outside of the course and then sell them back to their friends <laughs> it's a neat way of being entrepreneurial and I always was a um there were a lot of golf carts in to continue this golf theme, but for different reasons. In a neighborhood, we'd go in the summer, and kind of the old farts would use them to get to the beach. 
And I learned how to repair them and soup them up and add lights and horns and whatnot. And I did a little bit of, um, you know, mechanics uh, and uh, did that. So you were an entrepreneurial venture. So a little bit of here and there. But anyway, so what kid was I? I was curious. I was very comfortable around adults. So I would find myself holding court as a bunch of adults around me would just ask me questions. Sort of like a little circus freak because I apparently knew more answers than a kid my age should. And what else? I don't know. I was somehow destined for science even very, very early because we have this caricature. Apparently my dad took me to a caricature artist. And I don't know what age I was, but four or, or something like that, five. And it shows me brandishing a test tube and some other stereotypical scientific implement and smiling. And so somehow I must have told that character artist that I wanted to be a scientist. That's really interesting. So as a kid, you were already dealing with technology with a scientific curiosity, and it showed in the fact that you were more of a thinker than a, than a crazy, wild, sensory-only driven boy. So, all right, so jump to college and all the degrees and everything. When did you start thinking in terms of helping autism? How did you go from that boy, unless that might have been Asperger's, actually. I had a son that took everything apart, and I had to stick him in a box and say, learn how to put those back together. Uh, so, uh, so maybe you got a little flavoring there, but what got you to sure. wanting to work with autism? Well, I mean, it's actually a long road there because that autism thing is very, very recent for me. But there are some, some strings that go way back. I was interested in in language, interestingly, as an anthropological lens, as uh, understanding of human, the human condition and the human plight and human history and, and its manifestations. I like old books and old dictionaries. Uh, because they show the trajectory and progression of this thing called language that we share with each other and that we evolve together. And that relates to the way the brain works and the way the brain cuts up the world into its pieces. And then I studied neuroscience. I was driven into neuroscience just because it was so interesting, so fascinating, the, the deep frontier. And I looked at it as there were two really deep frontiers, deep space and the inner space between your ears. And they're both perplexing, and we both don't know much in, in both cases and have a lot to learn. But the fate of the cosmos, while interesting and someday maybe cataclysmic, in our life cycle probably won't do certainly not as much as uh, what our brain is doing on a moment-by-moment basis and what getting some kind of command over it would uh, would bring to humankind. And that really, everything lies in the balance there. The brain controls everything, controls our love and hate and our ability to communicate across cultural boundaries and our understanding of ourselves and everything that could lead to world peace or or really the opposite. And just the daily saga of being human is driven, controlled, uh, ameliorated, made unbelievably ecstatically wonderful or anything else by the brain. And I was very interested. So I went into neuroscience and brought some of that humanism into it by studying language as one of the most complex things the brain does. And really a human specific thing. Communication is not human and symbolic representation is not human, but propositional language and and logic and 
being able to entertain counterfactuals in a future that may or may not happen, uh, and all the complex social structures of language. As far as we know, it is only human, or we certainly desperately are, are um, illiterate when it comes to the languages of other animals. So it's a cool thing to study, and it also helped me get into some really, really cool reaches of neuroscience. For instance, some of that work, that, that prize-winning work at Harvard, was around direct recordings and what I was able to glean from them from the brain. And what I mean is people who've had surgery and there are electrodes implanted inside the meat, the tissue of their brains, and they do that to find out exactly where the source of epilepsy seizures are, then later do surgery that can definitively cure the person of epilepsy. But along the way, we get these recordings from the brain talking. And I mean this, the neurons and sets of neurons talking to each other in whatever their internal language is. And then at a very meta-referentially cool level, that happening during this human thing we call language. So in other words, what is the internal code and chatter amongst the cells that in aggregate lead to this thing called language? So I'm talking to a patient with wires in her, her or his head um, while those wires are listening to the cells talking to each other. Anyway, super cool stuff. And Super cool. Able, thank you. I was able to publish on that and whatnot. So it was language, and it was the reason that's specifically related to what I was saying before is that in such a very unique and rare preparation as that, you better be studying something that you can't study in another way. You can't study in a mouse model, thus something like language, and you can't study non-invasive right such, uh, you know, without something like this. And so all of that, and that somehow got me closer to autism. Language, of course, is somehow a challenge for many people on the spectrum. But I was not in the field of autism. And it was only much later that I I came here. Uh, should I keep going and kind of connect the You actually should wait a second so that I can tell everybody, and we're going to come back on that. Uh, find out that and then sort of play with that question I brought up. So you are listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Our guest has been willing to go with the Brain Dude as we've been emailing back and forth. So that means he's got a light side, even though he is super, super smart and is sharing all these really big concepts and lovely big words. So um, we're doing great. We're hanging in there with us. We're going to find out how the challenge of language led to having a technological interest in bringing a device forward that might help autism. And we're also going to play with the question of whether or not it's going to reinforce the problems or fix them. So lots of reason to stay listening. Stay to the very end of the show where I will do stories from the road, as I always do, but we're going to can. Okay, 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 the great guest giveaway, as I often do. Because today's guest is way too interesting for us to take time to worry about giveaways. Y'all hardly ever email me to get them anyway. If you want to get a hold of me, please remember LynetteLouise.com is my website. BrainBody.net is my therapeutic website. And you can always email me at mom number four evermore. Reads Mom Forevermore at Juno, J-U-N-O dot com. Let's go back to our guest, Dr. Ned Sahin. He's the founder of Brain Power. And he has told us kind of the story of how he's gotten 
to where he's at, and now we're going to find out how language and autism led to the brain power situation and why he's doing what he's doing. So let's go. Hi, Ned. Thanks for your patience in my little mid-show interrupt. Okay, so so tell us, um, you you have this interest in language. It's a fascinating paper, which, by the way, if you don't mind, I would love to read it. Um, that's your dissertation? It grew out of the dissertation, but it was one paper was published in Science, and then later there was a paper in Nature Neuroscience, and uh, I can send them. Absolutely, would love. To. Oh, I would. Lo- I would love that. I would. I would desperate be desperate to read it. Okay, so um, now cut to where you're at now. Let's tell them where you're at now. What you're doing with brain power and how that's all sort of come together into hopefully helping autism. Well, thanks. I'll accelerate through five years, but there's an important interlude, just as you've done an interlude. This interlude, I checked out and traveled around the world. So I mentioned had published in those journals and was doing science, academic science, and this formed the the, uh, underlayment, the the, uh, bedrock for what I'm doing now. But I felt like I wasn't helping people in their daily lives. People would write to me and say, hey, you're this brain dude, so can you help me? My daughter has this problem. My mother had this stroke. And I couldn't help because that's not what my career was bent toward. So that was in me as were all the other threads that I mentioned. And during postdoc, I just took off, traveled around the world, sold everything, traveled around the world, no phone, no address, nothing, and saw the world a little bit of it, and I came to this set of epiphanies, and I'll just accelerate and say that I felt like I wanted to start a company, but an academic uh, company, and do it in order to help people in their daily lives somehow with neuroscience and technology. It was also the time, uh, just upon my return, the day I returned from that year, I picked up Google Glass and got to know it, being a tech nerd, and got to know the details of the inside. It turns out Google Glass is a lot more than you might think. It's an amazing computer. It's a nine-axis accelerometer plus plus complex. It's a private experience, visual, haptic, auditory experience, and it can measure things that are highly relevant here. But I still didn't know how I was going to apply it. I actually thought I was going to work on epilepsy. And then I went to a seminar on autism. And now this is only a year and a half ago. Suddenly we're up to the the present almost. Mm -hmm. A year and a half ago, a seminar at MIT all day long on autism. And I realized in terms of that daily lives question, we were so behind. We knew a little bit about the science and about the genetics and we're learning more. But it's going to be a long slog in those directions. But what we didn't have is anything to tell a parent who just got the diagnosis or someone who's four years into the diagnosis and is struggling to understand what comes next. What are they preparing for? Are they preparing this child for college or are they better build out their support network? Because that's, that's not what's happening. And we don't have any definitive answers. What autism is, what comes next, what you do to build towards self-sufficiency how you can measure on a daily basis how that child is doing comparing to the cohort and really what's going to make life better. And 
what I realized is this autism thing. We don't know what it is and hard to define. We can get stuck in definitions. So we focus on life skills, life skills that are a greater challenge for people on the spectrum. And those skills are language, social engagement, including eye contact, metalinguistic skills like conversation skills, how close to stand, how loud to talk, when to take turns, and control of motor behaviors, and then learning categories from, from the data, which I'll explain later. So we focus on skills, and that's where I am now. I'm running a company. We make software. We use Google Glass to help train a coach and measure along the lines of these life skills. I'll just give one example so I can make it actually clear. One of the things kids on the spectrum generally struggle with is making eye contact. And so be it. It turns out the neurotypical world wants you to look it in the eye. I can't change that right now. And therefore, it's correlated with success if you look at people in the eye. They think if you don't look someone in the eye, they think you're disinterested, disingenuous, and maybe dysfunctional. It's just the case. So we use the accelerometer in glass to measure when mom calls Johnny's name, does he turn his head to look at her? And in general, when there's a face in the scene, we identify the face using machine vision with Google Glass and determine, does the child look and how often and when? And we measure that and quantitatively give progress reports. The more and the less, someone's looking someone in the eye. And if they're not, we give a cartoon-like gamified experience to encourage it, and we try to figure out why. Is there stress or distress going on? Again, based on what you can get from Google Glass, like blinks, heart rate, and breathing. So that's that's a long thing there, so I'll let you play with it. Oh, it's, it's awesome. So I, if, if you're measuring that, are you measuring actual eye contact or measuring eye on face? No, it, it's a stand-in. But... So your question to explain to the audience is there's, there's a difference between actual eye contact and my head is turned towards your head. Right now we're measuring my head is turned towards your head because that's what we can measure. But the fact is, if Johnny is head down playing with um, a model airplane or a toy soldier and mom's calling his name from, from behind his head, it doesn't really matter Right now, the big question is, does he swivel his head right round and look at her? And that's a big and overt motion that we can measure. The finery of whether he's actually looking directly in the eye or at the nose or mouth, we'll get to. But right. um, that's a little bit harder. I think you have a much bigger chance when you have the Google Glass there. And here's something I noticed in autism, and I don't want to get too far afield, but when we first started with uh, facilitation, if there was a third thing to look at, like looking at the computer screen for communication, so I'd type, and then the person beside me would type whether assisted or not, there was a much more attention to the the subject matter and it's sort of one one question and answer built upon another more like conversation and I noticed that it was partly driven by the fact that they didn't have to make direct face-to-face -face eye contact so then I started putting things between us 
and, you know, the thing I'm talking about possibly between us, so that they're looking at that but seeing me behind it. And mm. that was huge in increasing eye contact. So when you think in terms of where the Google Glass sits, it may right. just by its its nature of how it works with the visual right. bring right. their eyes to the person. It's an exciting it's thought, huh? It's something theirs, and it's something they control, right? So if I'm wearing it, it's my tool, and it's my world, and this, it can help. Uh, I don't know, maybe some of the audience are photographers who have done photography. Something kind of weird about having a camera glued to your face is you can get right in the face of a social event that might make you feel awkward, and you're just you're in it. So it's a license to be part of a world and yet sort of removed from it because right. there's this mask in front of you called a camera. You can get right into someone's baby shower or wedding or whatever, and you're sort of invited in because you have a camera and you can be there. So it's like that. So if you have this Google Glass on you, as you suggest, that might be enough. But then beyond that, one of the games we play is turning, you know, one of the apps we have is we turn all faces into their favorite cartoon. It's a character from Frozen or SpongeBob or Angry Birds. And so the faces get extrinsically interesting. And it's another mm. reason to look at the face. But then when they actually look directly, cartoon goes away and they get a reward, a happy tone, a point, and there a continuation is. of a game. And that's just to catch attention. And then if they're very far from, from the face, we have a little cartoon character kind of dance off the screen and guide them toward. But, you know, it's, it's not necessary always to communicate while looking at someone. But as I mentioned, the world does kind of expect that of us and we just have to, everyone has to kind of learn that. But if not, there are many other ways to communicate. And as you say, putting something there that they, an avatar or other that they can more likely interact with, that's also a possibility. Okay, so now let's get to the question, Rella. <laughs> so I think this is really exciting. I think that it may be the way to get out of the problem of codependency and increase generalizing skills if it's used right. Um, I have all kinds of ideas, and I'll, I'll share them with you. Um, hopefully I'm going to be meeting you sometime around the 10th or 11th if you're around. Um, anyways, I'm coming to Boston. So um, Cool. So I yeah, and I think it's a really exciting thing. Uh, I love to have a whisper in your ear anyway with my ideas about autism. But let's let's look at the question of maybe creating a codependence or preventing generalizing or being. For, and I want to do that on the stressing for STEM concept that I heard you talking about. So mm-hmm. when you were talking at Google, and people can go ahead and look this up. We'll tell them how at the end. Um, when you were talking on that last keynote, you mentioned about you know being able to tell that a, a person is more stressed and that then they do their STEM behavior and trying to use the glass to teach them to decelerate that stress before the STEM um, or as they STEM or whatever. So, and you were using, I think, the example of rocking. So here's here's something I want to play around with a little bit because I've seen stims come from stress, but I've also seen stims be habitual, stims be from excitement, stims be from, um, geez, I'm bored, so I think I'll stim. So it isn't always connected to a stressor. Uh, how would the glass, would you be able to tell the difference? Because uh, I don't want them being trained not to or like to rely on the glass itself when they're bored, when they're, you know what I'm saying? 
I do. Actually, I see three themes in what you're saying. One, dependency. If Glass gives them something cool, then do they get stuck? And now their world has to include Glass and might include a different set of behaviors that is undesirable. So that's one, just a general dependency on, on device. Parents with an iPad know that kids can get dependent on a device. Right. Two, whether stimming is always related to stress and whether stress is always related to stimming. Um, and then thirdly, in the very, very specific case, you know, would they try to bring on the, the little reward they'll get in, inside glass by, um, by simulating the stress or starting to do the other right. behaviors like stimming and then kind of would be counterintuitive. At a larger level, there are these worries. I mean, yes, these are valid, valid concerns, and we have to work with them. Um, in general, I think many people, especially in the parental generation involved, are desperately afraid that technology will take our soul away, that we will become less human because of the technology around us. And I think this is an enduring question, that probably people now are saying, kids are spending too much time with their tablets and their phones. And probably the Greeks and Romans said kids are spending too much time with their clay tablets. And that there's always this worry that something will take us away from being human. And it's a real worry, but it probably won't happen because we're the ones making the devices and making the content that's on the other side of them. Um, but it still is a worry, and it, it comes and goes. The iPad, for instance, is a boon to parents everywhere especially with kids on the spectrum. Kids love it, but you lose your child because they're looking down and at an interface and an experience that doesn't include the world. With Google right. Glass, you're looking up, and we're specifically rewarding them for looking people in the face and other things like that. So we're trying to resist that one trend of, oh, no, will technology make our kids less human and take them away from the world? So oh, and you're not using it as a babysitter. I've seen the iPad just be another yes. thing to stim with. So this is a very different – you're rewarding actual behavior that um, is going to connect them with people. We're trying to reward the behavior that we think will, will be beneficial, and that's the problem also there always. We have to make sure that we're checking in with kids, with parents, with adults, with autism, and, and with clinicians to make sure that we're guiding towards the right targets and I'm very open to continuous coaching. I want anyone and everyone who's listening to write in and give me their ideas of what is a good and a bad target because I'm just trying to respond to what the, uh, the parents and the people with autism want. But anyway, there is, there's that concern, and I think that's how we're laying it. Then there's um, would they become dependent. Overall, we look at it as Google Glass and our software would be something that a person would wear a couple few hours a day. It's like... Um, lessons for basketball or for piano or for anything else that you learn, you spend some hours drilling and then get on with life and, and everything else. So it's not something that they should become dependent upon completely. And why shouldn't we not expect that children with autism will learn the way children in general learn? They, they generalize. You give them a tra um, training uh, drill and that is not the only thing they produce from then on the rest of their life. If you tell a soccer player to run up and down the field 10 times and the game comes, he doesn't just run back and down the field. He plays a game of soccer. But you need to break it down into its constituent parts at some point. So we're trying to break down the social engagement and 
language and such into its constituent parts in ways that we can do on glass and then hope that they generalize and that hope is grounded in science and in experience. And then finally with the specific thing, which is in the keynote, but I'll, I'll highlight briefly now. I have a quick answer for you. And what this thing is, is this stimming app. Our premise is that one reason, not always, but one reason children start arm flapping or rocking or um, maybe vocalizing could be that there is a stressor in the environment that they can't control and it's, it's distressing or it's even inside their body. It could be in digestive system or elsewhere and they cannot express it in a way that would make it get better. And they can impose structure on the world by doing something repetitively. If you keep tapping on something or if you move your own limbs, you'll get haptic and proprioceptive feedback. You'll hear and see and feel the world in a way that you can predict. And that's really comforting. I invite everyone listening to think whether they do this. Because I know I do and I know almost everyone does. You might play with keys in your pocket. You might tap and drum. And if something is getting kind of more stressful or you're, you're daydreaming away into figuring something out, you might just do something repetitive. And people with autism do it more, and it can be more distressing because it's yet another way that the neurotypical world finds itself at a distance. So our premise is we want to give them something private that no one else sees that could replace that. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason people stim, but if we detect signs of oncoming stress, and that means the blinks and heart rates and breathing right. are changing. We can automatically provide something that is a little screensaver that only they see and some calming music, maybe even some uh, gentle buzzing, because that's one thing we can do with glass, so it's a, it's a vibratory feeling. Someone might hate all of that. That's fine. They get to choose. But whatever they finally can decide on for this day or this week is their favorite song or visual they can get and it might be a way to do a cross-channel stimming meaning using visual and auditory instead of motor as a way of again retaining control over the world one thing someone with autism told me when I tried it out on her she said well that's that's great but how do I stop because if I like it I'm just going to keep going with it and I said oh okay see there you go that's that's a good insight I didn't think about that so what we've built in is you only get so much. You're allowed X number of minutes per hour and X number of episodes in a day. So this helps you not get dependent on, on the thing. Right. Uh, no, so none of that secondary like, gain stuff. So what about will it slowly give you less and less and less for a shaping effect? We can do that. I mean, we can do that if that proves to be useful. But another way that's sort of counterintuitive, but it's, in equal and opposite thing is to make sure that it's always available, which is to say they can tap through the menus and get the experience. So in that sense, then you don't end up with a child saying, Ooh, I'm going to start rocking or yelling so that I get that little happy dancing clown that I like because I could get it anyway. Right, right. In fact, in my experience, you know, working with autism, giving, Free access to things is what takes the stress about getting access to it away. So it's, yeah. it's, it's yeah. Probably, it yeah. may even be, yeah, yeah. 
Exactly. Okay. Exactly. You know what? We're out of time. Oh, my gosh. You're so great. I hope you'll let us do this again as you move through the process. Are you looking at all for people Ooh, in studies? Yes, yes, or? Yes, yes. I mean, there's so many things I want to say. I didn't realize how much time had passed. And, you know, and we will. We will. If you'll... If you'll do this again, we'll we'll do it again because I think it's you're really well spoken and I think it's great stuff for people. But um, let's see if there's is, is there something Let we can do. do for you. Do you need family? Yeah, thank you. I need. Okay, please, everyone, we need several things. We're starting clinical trials soon, and we already have beta trials just in the offing. So we need you to sign up. And our website is Brain Power, but there's a dash in it, so it's Brain Dash Power. Brain-power.com, and there are various forms on there to fill out just that you're interested or that you'd like to participate. And we're listening, and we'll be getting back to you soon. So please sign up. And then also, we might be doing a, a fundraising thing, a Kickstarter, and it's going to be really exciting, and I'll tell you more about it. But just keep that in the back of your mind because we have these dedicated and delightful coders who are making the software happen, but we need to keep them fed. <laughs> we need to give them right. ramen noodles and better. So we're going to be doing that. So please look out for that. Just go on the website, tell us you're interested, and, and we'll get back to you. Wonderful, wonderful. And one last little bit of advice that you might want to share with people just from your observations and your work thus far? Have hope. Have hope. There's a pathway to self-sufficiency and happiness. Keep that hope. You are all wonderful, angelic people who are the parents and who are the um, teachers and who are helping guide these wonderful people's lives. Have hope. That's great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Sahin. I really appreciate your having been here with us. Looking forward Thank to you. meeting you. I hope you're in town when I get there. And um, we will have you back if you will come back. I will. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. Wow, we are so blessed. I'm definitely going to have Dr. Ned Sahin back on the show. I'm really excited about the possibilities of Google Glass. And with that in mind, or at least what Brain Power is doing with Google Glass, with that in mind, let's get to stories from the road. And you may not like what I'm going to say, but at the end of the day, the answer to the question of whether or not technology is going to reinforce the limitations of autism or whether it's going to alleviate the symptoms of autism actually kind of rests on the shoulders of the parents. Dr. Sahin said something. He said that generalizing does happen. And if you are a mom and, or a therapist out there who's having trouble getting the children to generalize their skills, your back might have gone up and you might have thought, no, it doesn't naturally happen. But my experience is that the reason the children aren't generalizing has to do with state-dependent learning and you've stuck them learning something in an unnatural state. So you're, to make that quick, you're teaching them how to say A 
well, let's use the word car. You're teaching them how to say car sitting at a table with pictures of cars. It has nothing to do with cars. And then when they get to the moment of getting in a car or car coming, they haven't related to this two-dimensional picture as being the thing that get, you know they like to ride around in. Even though you're saying it, you're not getting their attention because you took all their attention when you sat them at the desk and they didn't want to give it to you. So now they're off in their own minds, like we all are often, um, as they get in the car and not really hearing or attending to the connector between the car and the word car and the car itself, they've actually connected that to a picture instead. So that that is where generalization falls down. Now, if they're learning with something in the moment, which is what Google Glass can do for you, it can give you the in-the-moment learning, then you're more likely to generalize that skill. It, it would be a natural result. However, if the parent or the caregiver or the teacher gets in the way of that natural evolution, you will create a situation that looks as if generalization generalization doesn't happen in autism. And I'm going to explain that with a story. So here's my story. Um, years ago, I was introduced to a thing called facilitated communication. I started it with my son, who was nonverbal and extremely challenged. For those of you who aren't familiar with the show and haven't heard about him, he was locked in a closet for two years, severely abused. Part of his skull was missing. There was, you know, we didn't know if he was a feral child or autistic or um, just had such a low IQ or what it was. And it was kind of all of the above. He had a type of visual tracking that only worked for when something was moving. He had like he had all kinds of things. So he could, you know, he was he could see things in movement. He couldn't see them in stillness. So he had to stay, keep moving in order to see. It was he was just a very very challenged boy. He used to growl at everybody. So <clears throat> as time went on, he became more and more like a low functioning, severely afflicted autistic person. And or you know, back then they called it PDD when there was sort of this confusion of, of diagnosis. So eventually we were introduced to facilitated communication, and it was so exciting to be able to get access to a part of his uh, brain that we didn't even know existed, that he could actually communicate by pointing, but you had to kind of support him. He didn't have muscle control and eye, hands, uh, muscle control, especially given that he couldn't see it if he stared at it because it needed to be moving. So um, there was so much to work with and work on that he wasn't able to independently type at that time. Nowadays, they do a thing called uh, rapid prompt method, and uh, many of the kids do a little better with that, but it's still the same basic concept. And my son in, in that period in his life wouldn't have been able to use it. Uh, he just didn't have the visual processing he needed. So as as time went on, I did all kinds of things, and I don't have time to, to tell them to you. What became obvious is that the facilitation method, using a computer for communication, was as much a problem as it was a solution. So I now had access to his brain. I now knew that that he could think at a higher level than had been made obvious to me before. I now had taught this to many other kids, and so now I knew this about a lot of low-functioning people, that, that they could all of them actually could express things that we hadn't believed they could express previous to facilitation. But in all cases, I was still touching them 
to support their arm. And so the question was always, is this real or is this a type of Ouija board experience? And so we did all kinds of things like put posters up in different spots. So the A is on one wall, the B is on another, and they had to gross motor walk to the letters. Um, This made it obvious to me that they could do this independently because most of the people were able to spell in this way independently. We used a great big huge board, which is similar to the rapid prompt method now used, um, only it was much bigger than that for these people who had so many motor challenges. And again, we saw some independence, but the, the, the time frame that it took was so long, everyone just gave up. Nobody wanted to be communicated with in this way because it took so long just to answer one question. And um, for a lot of people, it was easier to think, well, that means it's not real and put it, you know, sweep it under a rug because if they admit that it's real, then that means they have to do it and it was too much work. So it was a really messy time. There was a lot of people said, came out and said, oh, this child has said they were sexually abused. And that that started happening everywhere. There was all this uh, hoopla on the news about, no, 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 it's the people handling their arm, making it happen. And sometimes that was true and sometimes it wasn't. It got so messy, everyone stopped. And now they're doing it again. Um, and so that's the history of it. But what, what I want to talk about or, or share in this story is the problem that evolved was something else as well. It was this need for the computer or need for the talk box or need for, you know. So there's many different kinds of, there's a Dynavox. And there's different things that people can use as an assistive device to type a word in or point to a picture and then the word is said rather like a Stephen Hawking's kind of experience of, of hearing a computer voice talk. So the problem is that if you don't have the computer handy or you don't have the Dynavox handy or you don't, you don't have language, and in fact, by creating this other version of communication that was so much higher level, the kids stopped talking. Any talking they did have completely disappeared. Or they talked about A while typing B, trying to multitask and and say more perhaps or going ahead and having habits. And people would ignore that and call that a stim and not work the verbalization into the communication. And so that's what it became. So here's where I say you may not like what I have to share is that generalizing and improving turned out it was my job. It was up to me to not say, oh, you need to communicate, let's use this method, but to use this other method as sort of a proving ground or as extra information. So it's like, well, you look stuck, let's go and type it, and they would type whatever, And then I would say, oh, this is how you say that. And I would choose one or two words to get them to say so that the most important part was you're communicating with me independently, right? So you want to say, put the weight on whatever method they can do independently and put the weight there. You walk around with your tongue and your lips and your, you know, it's easier to talk and be listened to. People appreciate it more. They treat you differently. So using the device as a extra piece of information makes it possible to keep language and, and actually get more spoken word. If you say, oh, never mind and ignore 
the spoken word and call it a stim and just ignore it and go to the typing and only value that, you will lose language out the mouth and independence, uh, independent of language, and you will get only the, the typed pointed at high-level communication that happens uh, when, you give them access, when you give a person access to that part of their brain without helping them to sort of work the skill that's a challenge, which is that motor movement in the mouth. So what I discovered was that my son stopped talking completely. Before he didn't talk either, but it was approximations at least in attempts. And he, he gave me uh, the appearance of language, attempts at bringing me things and all of that disappeared. It all turned into, we have to do it at the computer. And it turned into, I was like a slave to his, his need to communicate. And when that happened, then I had emotions about it. And I noticed that in every home that I was helping. So here I was bringing this technology technological advance to people and in some ways making them more backward. And it is our job to notice those things when they show up and to adjust for them. So if you want to see your kids get better, but at the same time independent, you want to watch for those those loops of codependency and find a way around them. It's actually your job. Sorry, it's your job. You're a parent. That's what we do. We learn how to make our kids independent so they can leave us someday. That's one of the advantages to a super disabled child. They stay around and become your best friend. I'm really loving it. Okay, thank you for being with me. And that was Dr. Ned Sahin that we talked to. Don't forget to look him up. Um, If you want to read my book, it's Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. It's available online, or you can go to my website at brainbody.net. Want to shoot me an email? You can use my personal email because you're one of my listeners. Mom number four, evermore at Juno, J U N O dot com. Thank you for being here because without you, I would just be talking to myself. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made A Real Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to our Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. I can't hear.